Good morning. I'm here with Irvin, and Caitlin should show up any minute. But Irvin is a rare celebrity, and he has to go first and leave first. So we're going to talk about fake news. But before that, Irvin's got Red Canary. Yes. So Red Canary has brought out a little while ago um, a Mac monitor tool for all those who want to do Mac um, research. It gives you a whole bunch of data uh, for your Mac research, like for malware research or testing stuff out. It's basically like system kernels all put together in one place. Now, there was already a series of tools, which uh, for another guy had been around for a while, I've heard questionable reports about. Anyway, I'll share uh, I think you're thinking of Objective-C. Yeah, Objective-C. How does it compare to that? Um, the big advantage of uh, Red Canary is it's all in one. Okay. But but uh, the Objective-C stuff does work, at least in my experience, it works well for what it does of being a, a your usual detection tool or tools. Like when the microphone turns on, when the camera turns on, when there's a new process trying to embed itself, this this tool only works when it's running, whereas the other ones will work in the background. So is the Red Canary focused at malware, or is it just a normal operation to try to make your Mac run smoother? Um, it's it's I think the way that they're that it seems to be working is more of when you're doing research over just being your your defense. Okay, so it might be interesting for people researching Mac malware, but not particularly for ordinary users trying to defend themselves. Right. Okay. Right. Fair enough. And you got the new Debian. Yeah, there's a new Debian out called Bookworm. That took a while, uh, almost two years. Wait for Bookworm to come Debian. out. Wow. Yeah. And and what's new? I mean, Debian doesn't seem to break everything like Kali, so I don't notice the changes much. No, they have a few updates on uh, what they're using, uh, but I haven't had the chance to play with it yet. But I'm guessing, just like all the others, it's not that big of a of an update. It's just it's just stable. Everything I wrote for Debian nine is still working fine on ten and eleven. Yeah, I really so, appreciate that. After Kali, man, Kali breaks everything every three or six months. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I see you got Proton Pass. Yeah, uh, looks like Proton decided to release their password manager out to the world. Mm -hmm. And if you are already paying for anything Proton, you get it too. I wonder if it's more secure than the others. They're all a whole lot less secure than I thought. I don't think that Protons is um, open source, though. Yeah. So that... After after I uh, I saw an article about it, I realized that every single one of these has a browser extension, and it connects to your browser, and all the passwords are just sitting in plain text in RAM, and you're everything all the time the browser is open. And they all seem to be designed that way. And so that means if anybody gets even non-administrative shell you on your computer, they can steal all your stuff from your vault. But, it's, but I guess it has, that's why I'm worried. I'm not sure any of them are any different than that. I don't know if this is any different than that either. It's probably yeah. the same. When I see them talk about why the new one is better, they have esoteric stuff like we're using a slightly different cryptographic algorithm or something, but but that doesn't sound like it really would matter much in practice. Right. Yeah, all right. 
Well, I got one here from the, the SEC has sent a notice to the SolarWinds chief security officer suggesting he may have in personal liability for SolarWinds for having failed to make the product secure enough. And this, of course, is a really big deal for the cybersecurity industry. Now, we're used to, you know, you have a breach, you have to pay a fine, you have to give people credit monitoring or something. But if the individual security officers are personally going to legally have to pay fine or go to jail because of the wrong of not keeping the place secure enough, that really makes it a very different job. And uh, so anyway, they call this a Wells notice. And uh, we'll see how it goes down in court, but it's, people are quite worried about it. If CISOs have more liability, I'm not sure what will happen, but I guess doctors have always been in this position. If you're a surgeon and you make a mistake, you can personally have to pay a lot of money. I don't think your hospital indemnifies you, or at least they don't all indemnify you, but that would be the next issue. I would think if I was going to be a CISO, I would want my company to indemnify me. Anyway, uh, there may be some madness coming from that. And Caitlin's here with misinformation. We don't have enough yeah. misinformation on our podcast. So. We don't. And uh, it turns out uh, that some studies were done um, and at the University of Cambridge. And it turns out that, you know, the old meme of the boomers watching Fox News and believing misinformation. Well, it turns out that boomers are actually the least susceptible population to fake news. Uh, so let me pull this up here. So this is on uh, fizz.org. Um, and it talks about fake news. Yeah. <laughs> Clear, clearly, this is all fake news. Um, no. Uh, so the University of Cambridge uh, did a study on misinformation susceptibility. And what they found is that younger people, Gen, uh, you know, Gen Z type uh, youngsters, are the most susceptible to, to fake news uh, and believing fake news. So when it came to age, um, only 11, so this is from the, the article, uh, when it came to age, only 11% of 18 to 29 year olds uh, got a, a high score identifying, you know, what it was true and what it was not. Um, and uh, in comparison, 36% of those who are 65 and older were able to identify, you know, fake news versus non-fake news. As and I mean and and this makes sense if you think about it. Of course, I, I remember trying to teach uh, grade schoolers how to identify, you know, biases in in media and uh, other sources, and they had a really hard time. So this is something that takes takes some skill to suss out, you know, whether or not a source is trustworthy or not. And it, yeah. Well, the first thing I notice is those numbers are really terrible. That means two thirds of people fall for it at every age. Yes, yes. Uh, misinformation is a problem at every age. Um, what what this study is debunking is the idea that somehow boomers are more susceptible to fake news because they've been. You know, that's not the case at all. Uh, young people are are actually more susceptible to fake news than than boomers. Oh. They it's they just don't. By a boomer. They they just don't watch the news, so well, you don't realize it. <laughs> well, I want to push back on that. I think it you tailor your message. I think, for example, Fox is, has carefully designed messages that will fool older people. And I think people that sell breakfast cereal have carefully tailored messages that fool young people. I think, you know, with spearfishing, you target an audience and you give them a message they want to hear. So I, I think it's, I would like to know exactly what disinformation they used in that study. And I don't know if you could even define like generic disinformation. I think disinformation tends to be targeted at a certain audience. Um. So... 
so the study used AI to generate fake articles, which is what they used to, you know, have try to get people to determine. Yeah, yeah. Just I'm, you know, I'm think we all know this. This is just social engineering, and yeah. if you if you carefully craft your message, you can fool almost anybody. Yep. All right. Absolutely. Cool. Yep. That I think is a big message. Very many people are usually fooled at every age. Yeah. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, most people think they can't be fooled or that propaganda does not work on them, which right. you, I, I hate to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you are not immune to propaganda. That's In fact, right. let me, let me pull that up. Uh, you are not immune uh, mm -hmm. to propaganda. There's a great image of Garfield. Let me pull it up here. Oh, come on. Yeah, there we go. There's the Garfield. Oh, you are not immune to propaganda. All right, I'm not sure that I think Garfield is particularly appropriate for that, but anyway. Yes, it is. You are not immune to propaganda. All right. Well, it's certainly true, and I think the same thing's true of advertising. Um, we have an emotional connection to other people and a desire to conform and have respect and fit in, and if you turn that off, we'd be a psychopath. So that means you are immune to influence from others. I mean, you have it. it means you're not immune. So, so anyway, all right. Well, I was surprised to read about this. Um, Brave is now going to curb port scanning by your websites, which apparently a large number of websites do, like eBay and many other big ones. This is apparently, I was unaware of this. They run a port scan on 127.001 to see what ports are open in order to fingerprint your brow, your machine, so that even if you don't let them put on tracking cookies, they can still track you. And this is a commercial software package people build into their websites. A lot of big companies do. And Brave is now blocking it. And I, this seems like a really good idea to block because this is also a way to take over your at-home devices, which is probably in a way, you know, scanning your local network. So uh, I think that's very interesting. I didn't know people were port scanning you just from visiting normal websites. But now I do. And you've got why people share fake news. Yes. Um, so on on the topic of fake news, obviously, there's a lot of people on social media sharing fake articles. And the question is, how do we curb that? How? Why do people do that in the first place? And what can we do to, to stop it? So MIT comes, you know, comes to the rescue. Um, they apparently did some studies uh, looking at you know, why people, what, what are the commonalities between people that share fake news and, and people that don't? Um, and unfortunately, they bury the lead a little bit in this article, but it turns out that the the reason um, or, or the correlating factors that a lot that people use to share fake news, or, or let me, let me, let me back up. The, the factors of people that identify don't share fake news and only share true articles is a belief in democracy and and truth basically like th those are the two things that that seem to go go together with people that don't like fake news uh so if you have a strong belief in democracy and if you have a strong belief in sort of accuracy <laughs> um which makes sense but the democracy is is a little less making sense because uh but it but it turns out if you look at people in countries that don't have a like a strong democratic regime uh, they tend to share more fake news and they don't see anything wrong with it um 
same thing in America. If you, if you if you question the people that are sharing fake news, uh, the people that are more in favor of a strong democracy and letting everyone vote and everything, they're the ones more likely to share only true articles and identify and call out fake articles. So mm. what what causes people to share fake articles? Well, um, that is also in here, um, and this is this is interesting. So one of the one of the common traits is a belief that the uh, is a belief in individualism over the government. So we we as as Americans, Sam, we all know those people who don't trust the government and are hyper libertarian and and just want to be left alone. Um, and that is correlated with a lot of fake news. Um, and this, I, I suppose, makes sense because if you don't trust authority figures, right. you know, like you're, you, yeah, that's that's a big problem. Um, and let's see. Uh, um, and you oh, I'm on the wrong. And you hear Elon Musk and his gang being like this. They don't trust vaccines or anything because they don't trust even scientists to have right. a yeah. Right. I was. I have to apologize. I was actually on the wrong article. So this this is the correct article. Why do people share fake news? I was like, where's the paragraph that explains all this? <laughs> um, and let's see, who is this written by? Just by the MIT Sloan Office of Media Relations. Okay. Um, so like I said, they, they do bury the lead. Um, and let's see. Um, oh, a belief in God was the other thing that, that tied people together uh, to share fake news. And I suppose... I, I mean, I, I don't want to go on a rant against religion because I, I think it's religion can be positive and helpful in, in a lot of people's lives uh, and even healthy. Uh, the problem, of course, is we as Americans, we also know those people that take their religion a little too far and they start believing in, in magical thinking, you know, that if they pray, they can cure diseases and, you know, they can speak in tongues and stuff. And once once you give in to that sort of magical thinking, it, it pays way for things like, you know, fake news, you know, your own truth, that kind of stuff. Well, even if you don't do that, um, I think, I mean, I had this discussion with my sister all the time, who defends the right-wing stuff more than me and follows them much more closely. And the, uh, they believe that there are certain obvious truths and that, for example, you'll believe something like, uh, there's no transgender people, there's only two genders, God made them that way. And therefore all your science and sociology and everything is all just nonsense. So they just, they have a different concept of what makes something true. What makes something true is something like tradition and respect for tradition. And they think it is ridiculous to neglect all that tradition the way the, the liberals do. So, well, I, I, I think we're saying the same thing. Whereas, you know, what, what makes things objectively true, of course, is that you have data that reflects objective reality, right? That, I mean, that, that is. That's the scientific what, materialist point of view right right but when you when you start believing in things that are like magical then you can start having different ideas of what constitutes objective reality because you're you're no longer in that sort of scientific what is true you know how do we determine truth on an objective level you can just throw objectivity out the window uh, when you start believing that you know god has an idea for our lives yeah and that if science disagrees with that there's something wrong with science you know Yes, and that, that is the position. I mean, the right-wingers generally don't believe in science. They believe in religion instead, and and it's a sort of arbitrary value judgment, which are these which choices you make. And I've read some pretty good analyses to say it really goes back to the traditions of the ethnic groups that settled different parts of America. Mm -hmm. They value these different things. We're really sort of uh, like an amalgam of 12 different tribes here with different 
traditions and concepts of how life should be lived, which is why we have this endless battle between the North and the South. Correct. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, there's I've got an article here at the Register uh, by Katiana Quach about AI defeating voice authentication. I I think I've heard of this, although I haven't seen it. There are people where you call your bank and they recognize your voice on the phone and count that as authentication. And I thought that only happened in science fiction movies, but apparently people are really using that. And they have shown that with machine learning, they can make a simulated voice that will fool that. Which, uh, you know, the, the old fashioned trick is just record your voice and patch it together. And of course, now with machine learning, they can do a better job of that, whereby listening to some samples of your voice, they can talk just like you. So we really probably shouldn't be using voice authentication anymore, unless they can improve it and make it harder to fake. I, I, there were several episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation where obviously all the characters were talking to the computer and they would use voice authentication so the characters would just copy the voices. I mean, people understood that this was going to be an issue even before <laughs> these technologies existed. Oh, yeah. And it, there's all these uh, examples everywhere. And, uh, you know, people that imitate voices. I remember when telephones, when I was young, telephones were still relatively new. And people were very suspicious. How do you really know who you're talking to on the phone? You can't see them. You don't really know who that person is. And that's true. Anyway, and you've got uh, the evils of irony. You know who doesn't like irony is Elon Musk. He says he's never talked that way. It's terrible. Right. Well, no. Elon Musk definitely is, is part of the problem here. So uh, King's College of London uh, did a study on irony online. And you can also think of irony as also like jokes um and and this has been known for a while where a common right-wing far right-wing tactic is to introduce radical ideas radical right-wing ideas through the use of humor um so instead of saying oh we should kill gay people they you know joke about oh wouldn't it be funny look at all these gay people it would be funny if they you know suddenly had an accident you know they you know it's you, you start you you climatize the population to your hateful ideology, starting with humor. This is a, a known tactic on Twitter. Right now you go on Twitter um, because it's been radicalized. A lot of the stuff you see are memes that are basically hate memes, right? Like, like they're, but of course, when you, call, the, the, the idea is that if you call out those memes, people, the, the hate groups will say, oh, it's just a joke. You know, it's a way to cover their ass you know, as they, you know, but, but it, it's serious. And that's something that, that didn't, that I did not understand uh, growing up, but I do understand now as an adult is that these, um, is, is that that's how these hate movements get started. They don't start by, you know, advocating for, you know, genocide or anything like that. They start with jokes and you really have to, when you see a joke that's inappropriate, you, you do have to call it out. I, I can't, stress this enough um anyway so on to the article so the king's uh college of london did research into this uh basically came to the same conclusion that yes jokes memes ideas are the um uh is the animating force is is what the article describes it as uh for new social movements intrinsically linked to the you know alt-right and nazism so it's now we now have have research on this yeah, yeah, it seems like it makes a lot of sense. I always thought of, uh, say, bigoted jokes as a way of testing 
to see if the people around you agree with this unpleasant idea in a, in a relatively safe way. Right. Exactly. Well, there, there's two things. Yeah. There, there's also the, you know, testing the waters to see if it's okay to push things further, yeah. but it also gets people used, people who aren't used to that level of bigotry, you know, suddenly, you know, there's just, it's just jokes, just get used to it, whatever, you know, and, and that's, and that's how they, you know, shift the, um, the window of, of what's acceptable in, you know, polite society. And you can use it on the left too. Mark Twain said he was primarily a preacher and so was apparently Lenny Bruce. And by using humor, you can talk about forbidden topics. Yes. And get away with discussing something that is too serious that will get people all defensive if you bring it up directly. Right. And yes, yeah. So like so like all techniques, there's it's a double-edged sword, right? You you could use it to discuss things like thing things that might make people a little uncomfortable, like like a, you can bring up abortion issues in, in terms of humor, right? We can, we can talk about, uh, you well, know, that, that. that's, that's a concept that's usually so loaded that all humor goes out the window immediately. Oh, I, I've seen, I've seen some, some good abortion, abortion humor, but you know, I'm, I'm just a radical feminist who likes that kind of stuff. Maybe but, it's a crowd, but I can't see a conservative seeing, finding any humor in that topic. I, I don't know. Oh, no, 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 no. But, but what conservatives use humor for is to spread hate. And that, that's where you that's where you have to call it out. It, it's not it's not using humor to bring up uncomfortable topics or taboo topics, which is which is good, which is, you know, you, you do want to talk. If there's something in society we don't talk about, like um, like the fact that we all die. Right. Like like this is something we all have to deal with. Right. We don't really talk about it, but we can we can crack jokes about it and, and, that, and use that to sort of, you know, discuss this in a way that. You know, and that's fine. But if if, if you but alt writers, um, you know, hate groups use use memes and jokes, you know, to spread hate, and that's not okay. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's important to recognize. All right. Well, I recognize think... and call it out, people. Remember, if you do not call out hate when you see it, you are a passive participant. Yeah, yeah, but it. All right, fair enough. I'm gonna um. Uh... All right, well, that's it for this one, and we'll have another one on Tuesday. Just, 